Welcome to Pondering AI. My name is Kimberly Nevela, and I'm a strategic advisor at SAS. I'm so excited to be hosting our second season as we continue to talk to a diverse group of researchers, policymakers, advocates, and doers, all working to ensure our AI-enabled future puts people and our environment first. Today, I'm thrilled to bring you Dr. Valerie Morignat. With apologies, by the way, she's been very gracious and not asking me to butcher my French pronunciation. So thank you, Valerie. I did try, but the French R has KO'd me. So in any case, Valerie is the CEO of Intelligent Story and a leading advisor on the creative economy. She is a true polymath, and she's going to talk to us about how AI may change our reality virtually and in real life. So thank you for joining us, Valerie. Thank you so much for hosting me today, Kimberly. And I think your French is just perfect. Oh, the French are very sweet and possibly not honest. Um, Anyway, uh, (laughs) so I have to tell you, I found amongst your numerous public accolades, uh, this one, which I think really encapsulated what I believe is your superpower. And it was this. Valerie is a creative unicorn who has a unique talent for taking ideas to market. And you do have a very unique background. So can you share a little bit of your early work in the arts? Thank you so much. I love that question. I hear it uh, often because indeed, uh, my background is not at all in AI, although I've been working on AI and VR uh, technologies for over two decades. But uh, my PhD is in art and art sciences. My professional life really began uh, as a doctoral research and teaching fellow at the University of uh, Sorbonne in in Paris. And at that time, uh, I was really exploring the transversality of the creative process through the edges. And that led me to work on immersive and interactive arts as much as ancient arts, for instance, since I collaborated with the Museum of the Louvre in Paris uh, on uh, on the work of Leonardo da Vinci. So my, my research interest was as much about virtual reality as it was about ancient arts and how ancient cultures inform technologies and innovation today. Um, um, and and I pursued this journey through uh, becoming actually a tenured associate professor of cinema and interactive arts. And at that time, I taught uh, over 2,000 hours of courses on topics such as sociology of the future, post-digital cinema aesthetics, applied futurology, virtual reality design. So it, it was really interesting because it gave me the opportunity to work with uh, my students on both uh, the theoretical approach of AI, robots, virtual reality, as they are represented in fiction, and also work on how, as technologies, they were transforming cinematic arts and also transforming the way we were relating to technologies and to our own life. So uh, that's what I've done uh, on the academic side, um, but that also influenced uh, my work as an artist uh, since I've been also for a little bit over a decade an underwater photographer. That's an aspect that I rarely get to talk about when I'm interviewed about AI. Uh, And yet everything's connected because every time I I take pictures underwater of mythological scenes and and creative uh, environments underwater, uh, it's always a reflection about immersion and how immersion shapes our understanding of the world, our perception, how it expands our imagination. Uh, I also uh, worked indeed in uh, healthcare design uh, and particularly in the design 
design of virtual reality experiences, uh, interactive experiences. I actually uh, led more than 300 projects in that area. So everything's connected, uh, theory and practice, uh, and everything is inspired as much by ancient culture as they are by innovation today. Yeah, there's no doubt that art influences life and vice versa. And that has obviously been true since well before AI came on the scene. But we do have this tendency, and I've been leaning into this a little bit this season, to think that some of the the problems or issues confronting us with AI are somehow entirely new. I would love if you could help us zoom out a little bit and discuss some of that broader historical context in which we can better frame some of the issues that we're confronting today. Yeah, I love that. And an example I actually uh, rarely use, but that is really relevant to this conversation is uh, if we want to talk, for instance, about a technology such as virtual reality, some people think VR has been around for five years. Others know it's been around for actually 50 years, but others will tell you, oh, but in the 19th century, uh, we already had goggles that were designed to actually expand the perspective of an image and make people travel to distant landscapes. And of of course, none of this was using the modern technologies of today. But I can take you far back in time, further back in time, and take you to prehistorical caves. <laughs> we know that fire was used at the center of those caves to actually create a moving light that was transforming the way those paintings on those walls were displayed. They were moving and morphing depending on how the light was moving uh, and reflecting on, on those walls. So here we can see that there was an attempt not only to use storytelling as a means of expanding reality, of expanding the experience of the world and communicate it to others, but also using the technology of fire associated with storytelling to bring us already in a immersive and almost interactive before before its time uh, experience. So the ancestor of VR is extremely old. Now, when we talk about robots and AI, we also tend to think that those are new technologies. And I think the words we use tend to shape that perception. We also think of all the science fiction movies that are representing AI and robots in ways that are not matching the, the reality of the industry. The industry is not that advanced. We don't have uh, humanoids uh, walking the streets. Uh, we do not have AIs that are smarter than us. AI can achieve uh, in very, very specialized tasks. Uh, AI can achieve uh, outcomes that are, in a way, for some specialized tasks, um, more intelligent than us, but they are not as intelligent as human beings. So where else have those ideas come from? And just how far back do our musings about AI go? Actually, I find ancestors of uh, AI and robots uh, very far back in time. I would tell you that uh, one of the first ancestors we can think of is the robot Talos, who uh, was created by the god Ephaestus in Greek mythology. And he was actually a security guard. He was designed to protect uh, the island of Crete against uh, invaders, against intruders. So he was the first security robot, <laughs> right? Um, in the 12th 
<laughs> in the 12th century, I have exa other examples. I think of uh, someone who was an absolute genius, the polymath, uh, the Arabic polymath Al-Jazari. He published a book in which we have the blueprint of more than 100 automated devices. And they were really close to what today ambient computing is, is trying to, to create, right? Those environments that are going to react to your movements. They're going to know what you want and uh, some colors are going to pop on your walls and music, the exact music you want to hear is going to play and the fountain. Anyway, you can think of all sorts of applications. And Al Jazeera thought about those in the 12th century. And if you think of Leonardo da Vinci, you'll have the Mona Lisa in mind and uh, the extraordinary drawings of Leonardo da Vinci. Pretty much no one knows that Leonardo da Vinci was actually the first inventor of the very first autonomous vehicle. He designed a cart that was designed to deliver vegetables in the city of Florence. And, and that design inspired the robot rover that is today on Mars. So uh, the history of those technologies is very long. And uh, that's why I often say, I don't think we're going today through an AI revolution or a robotics revolution. We are going through uh, the realization of a very ancient uh, uh, evolution, something that started thousands of years ago and that is coming to fruition today because we are building those things. But the desire to expand our reality, the desire to transfer part of our identities onto objects, the desire to build other forms of intelligence uh, in objects is a very ancient one. So what can we learn as we look back in history and really far back in history there about some of the just innate tensions and conflicts that come up when we, and, and really just perceptions about our, our relationships with tools? Is there a perspective there that helps us better understand or frame some of the debate that's happening today? Yes, absolutely. I think that one of the questions that is rarely addressed is the influence of cultural legacies uh, on the way people adopt technologies. The pace of adoption and uh, the challenges also uh, that are associated with adoption of those technologies are directly related to uh, the cultural legacies, the, the mental model, if you will, that exists uh, in our society and in users themselves. And I'm going to give you a very concrete example. There's a, a huge difference between um, the way robots, for instance, or AIs are represented uh, in fiction in the West world and in the Far East. In, in the West world, we have always those very dystopian scenarios, you know, yeah. uh, the robot overlord uh, character who is going to, to inevitably destroy humanity or who is a character who, who, whom we can trust because he's very deceitful, his appearance is, is deceitful. There's a lot of existential questions that are associated in the West world with those technologies. And all this comes from the fact, again, that uh, there's a very, very old influence of very ancient symbols that, that is at play here today. Uh, for instance, in, in Judeo-Christianism, it is really a transgression to try to create a creature that will look like a human being. Uh, why? Because 
the world of the world, nature, the universe is the, allegedly the creation of God. So every time yeah. you're doing something that looks like you're competing with the work of God, you are going to be punished. This creature will turn against you and destroy you. So there's, there's a very negative connotation associated with that. And even if we go beyond the realm of religion, we can see that uh, uh, historically those negative associations have stained the image uh, or the prospect of the robot. We find them, for instance, in literature through the, the figure of the double. Every time a character sees his copy, that's a prophecy of his upcoming death. Mm -hmm. uh, the double is a threat because by definition, the double is the division of what needs to remain one. The individual is supposed to be one in one place. And we see how those representations, they really question also situations that we, we live as human beings who have to manage a huge variety of digital identities on a huge variety of platforms, we are more and more fragmented. We have to yeah. manage more and more uh, identities here and there. And that can be very disconcerting. That can lead to existential questions also. So just to, to complete uh, the picture I'm giving you, uh, something that is going to be interesting to business innovators who are listening to, to this conversation is the fact that in the Far East, we have a very different influence. Uh, the influence is that of Shinto, uh, the influence of Taoism, the influence of Buddhism. And we are not in that doomsday scenario where technology is opposed to uh, nature and is going to necessarily be associated with uh, destruction. On the contrary, in those societies, the, the energy that lives in a living being is the same that uh, lives, quote marks, in a technology, in an artificial creature. So there's no opposition between society and between uh, humans. And why is it interesting to business uh, uh, innovators who are listening or investors who are listening to this, uh, this show? Well, it's interesting because if you look at who are the top countries <laughs> ahead in terms of technological adoption um, in, in robotics, well, they're all in the Far East uh, region of the world, uh, Japan, Korea. Uh, and so uh, there's a direct correlation between the past that we should not ignore at all and business innovation today. So if we want to adopt technologies and if we want to move forward at the pace we want to, we need to address people's fears, people's mental models, people's representation, because they are highly, highly influential for businesses. Yeah, and it's interesting because a lot of times when we're talking about, for instance, AI ethics or responsible technology and the differences in sort of ethical codes or, or mores or just the approach to adoption and the willingness to adopt these types of issues, even things that are like surveillance tech, we tend to look really in the, the mm -hmm. sort of near past, if you will, right? And, and we tend to really lean into a lot of more political influences or, or assume that that's a little bit, a bit more of the sort of political history and, and culture, but you're really taking this all the way back to fundamentally thinking about how people view their place in the universe and, and some of those things that have come through, you know, over time. And I suppose this circles back to, which is a lot of our relationship with our tools, if you will, and it sounds perhaps odd to say we have a relationship with our tools. Um, we do, though, we do. It's absolutely accurate to talk about a relationship with our tools. And I think you've said, you know, our behavior influences our tools and our tools mm -hmm. influence our behavior. So 
why is it important for us to think about that relationship and, and think critically about how yes. these tools are influencing us and how we influence them? And and are there any unique factors today that yes. you know are accelerating? Again, I love that question, and it makes me think what you just said of the uh, Marshall McLuhan, who was a, a theorist of digital media and media, and he said that uh, we shape our tools and thereafter our tools shape us. And I think that this is really at the core of what you just said, because um, every time we create something, if and particularly if it's a tool that has a power of amplification, such as AI, we need to think that at some point that uh, using that tool is going to influence us on many, many levels. It's going to influence the way we think. And I'm going to take, uh, since I'm also a photographer, I'm going to take a photography example here. Uh, when when digital cameras uh, became a thing and when they became more and more accessible, I've heard lots of uh, photographers saying, oh, people are going to make awful photos because they're going to think that this is cheap. So now they can, they can take tons of photos and photography is not an art anymore. And actually I thought, well, I don't think it's going to happen that way. I think that because people are going to be able actually to, to take a lot of photos, they are going to improve their skills. There will be a human augmentation from the place of using a technology that is cheap and that does not have that sense of exclusiveness anymore. And that also can be used for personal training on a daily basis. The same thing is going to happen with those AI applications that we use every day. Uh, we don't realize it, but now we we use more and more. Uh, we write better and better, right? By, by virtue of having uh, automated correction uh, of what we write, uh, we are going to to be able soon to do a lot more things with an additional layer of intelligence that will be layered really on onto every systems we are going to use. As you talked about photography and how AI is becoming a pervasive overlay, my mind jumped to recent advances in facial recognition and analysis. How are the legacies of the past influencing the development and adoption of these specific technologies? Those are very important topics, and I work also with policymakers on, on how to regulate those technologies in various geographies, not just in the U.S., also in other countries. And it's a sensitive topic everywhere. Why is it sensitive? Not only because, of course, there are discriminatory bias that exist that have been demonstrated in those technologies. Uh, that's a huge issue, and we could hope that those issues are going to be resolved soon. But we don't know that they are, those technologies work better. But I see the problem elsewhere. To me, the, the problem with that technology is that it is the legacy of a classification system that started a very long time ago. Again, I can find uh, examples in Aristotle. Aristotle, <laughs> that's a very long time ago, right? Where there is the assumption that by looking at the surface, by looking at people appearance, you can infer somebody's uh, personality and you can infer somebody's intent. Uh, we're close to a scenario of a movie such as Minority Report here. Are we going one day to jail people based on intent, based mm -hmm. on a system that would have inferred that this person may be a criminal? Well, 
That's uh, a, a dream that uh, many uh, um, people had in the past. In the Middle Ages, uh, the virtue of people was allegedly readable on their faces, and those faces were caricatured to serve as templates. So those tools, those thoughts were already there. They were just not using the power of AI to be deployed at scale and to amplify uh, what could already be a bias. So I think what's really specific with AI and what we need to pay attention to is the amplification power. And if we pay attention to that and we focus on reasons why we want to use AI, then we realize that we can use that amplification power to do more good, or we can use that amplification power to aggravate issues that have been there for a very long time. Yeah. And, you know, as technologists, I think we're often sometimes justifiably criticized for always saying, well, we'll figure it out, right? The technology is not perfect now, but we'll figure it out, right? Technology will sort of come to technology's rescue. And I, I think you're also implying here that there, there might be scenarios in which we aren't going to figure out, or maybe we shouldn't figure it out. Um, I know you also do work in, you've mentioned AR and VR, and I know you had even in your early work in the cinema. Uh, and then you did some work in healthcare too, I think, with thinking yes. through things like the application of augmented or virtual reality mm -hmm. types of situations. I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about the idea of responsible innovation through yes. the lens of some of the opportunities and challenges, you know, both obvious and, and unobvious that you came across in some of that work. Uh, I, I love it. As you can imagine, I always love the unobvious <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> because I think this is where we should look farther. Um, so uh, I'm going to start with sharing with you what I consider as uh, the pillars for responsible design. I get asked that question uh, sometimes, not often enough, but sometimes because I, that's also something that I teach uh, as a mm -hmm. professor of AI and responsible design. So, And I'm going to connect that to VR and to where I think it's going to be really important for the very near future, because the very okay. near future is the metaverse. It's really happening now. I started working on it 20 years ago, theoretically, but now it's the beginning. <laughs> uh, things takes time. What is new takes a long time. That's the theme of today, right? Yeah, that's true. <laughs> so uh, responsible design, really, uh, to me, the very first question is, what are we building um, innovative technology, emerging technology for? What problems are they intending to solve? And uh, the, the very first pillar to me is relevance and beneficence. Uh, is this going to be beneficial? And if it's beneficial, for who is it going to be beneficial? Is there equity in that, in that benefit? Is this benefiting only a very small um, number of stakeholders? Or is this technology um, susceptible to really make an impact? So being socially beneficial and relevant is a very important, uh, very important uh, pillar. The second one is really to avoid harmful outcomes. And you said something important when you mentioned that it's not just about the imminent challenges, it's about those that we don't necessarily see yet. Before social media, we didn't realize that social media could become 
you know, uh, could drive the next disinformation pandemics, to use terms that are very current. Mm -hmm. Um, We didn't realize that those uh, platforms could actually distort behavior. Those were unforeseen challenges. And I think now we have enough distance with those technologies to realize that it's extremely important to pay attention as much to the imminent challenges as to foresee those. So I um, think that we should absolutely pay attention to that and try to to expand uh, our our vision here. Um, Those tools, they should always be built for uh, safety and they should be tested for safety. They should be accountable to people and society also um, because we know that tools shape us and they also uh, have the power to change society. Uh, We should never discard human agency. Uh, Not everything should be automated. Do we want to live entirely into virtual reality tomorrow? No, there are lots of things that we still want to experience in the sensory realm of the physical world. Uh, Do we want to automate everything? No, because there are lots of tasks that actually are beneficial to people. So even if AI can do them, well, maybe it's better to keep them with people so they can learn more. Um, we need to design for human augmentation. Whatever we design, uh, we sh- the goal is not to make us completely passive. The goal is to always function with a model that I call the model of the centaur, a hybrid model where we have human intelligence that compounds with um, artificial intelligence and, and intelligent design. And that's really the, the triad here. So I could go on and so forth about responsible design. But I think we want to talk briefly about VR. I think VR um, is is today uh, still dependent on technologies that are not advanced enough to make us fully forget about the fact that we have those heavy goggles on our sure. <laughs> forehead. Uh, I have several VR equipments here, as you can imagine. And that's an out they always make me smile because 20 years ago when I would teach uh, those topics to my students and we would watch those movies where characters are, uh, you think they are uh, living uh, in, in, the, in the real world. So you are, you, you've ex- you're experiencing the same deceit they're experiencing. But after a while, you realize that actually they're not living in the real world. And we don't know where authenticity is. We don't know where the real is because the real world is completely lost. And these people have to go through that initiated journey in that movie to finally access the real. So those people all along were trapped in a virtual world. And every time I would work on those topics from a philosophical perspective with my students, they would always tell me, oh, this is very frightening. In, in less than five years, we will none of us will know what's real and what's not. And I told them, maybe, but I'm pretty sure it's not going to happen because of virtual reality. Maybe it will happen because the signs of the real will be confused with, the, with fallacies and alternative realities. And today we, we can see that this is happening. People have to fact check everything. Uh, deep fakes are used to change uh, uh, situations by by literally enacting situations that never happened. That's not because of VR. That is because of the way all those tools are used to create mistrust in information. So that's our relationship to technology here that needs to, to be investigated more than those tools that are not able yet to completely deceive us. You also mentioned the sort of quest for reality shifting into the the quest for authenticity or maybe verification. Mm-hmm. And certainly we know in terms of disinformation and, and things like that. But, you know, when you start to think about 
what you project in the digital realm. And, and so now I'm not even talking about bad actors, right? Mm-hmm. Who are actually purposely putting information out there. But as these situations and digital environments get more realistic, as we put more of ourselves out there, are you seeing a shift or a tension between we wanted to make things more and more real and now we're yes. looking more and more for authentic relationships, engagement, Well, you know, it's uh, authenticity is a very, very interesting theme and a very deep one uh, for for philosophers. And I taught philosophy for many years in in the context of my uh, tenure with the University of Montpellier. And uh, my experience, actually, as a cinema professor really helps me understanding what's happening today, because... 15 years ago, when when uh, computer-generated images were used more and more in cinema, when we could literally uh, create from scratch uh, entire landscapes, which is very common today, but 15 years ago, that, that was uh, really something quite extraordinary. That was an accomplishment. When we were working on that, we were always running into something that is really interesting. When things looked too real, too hyper-realistic, this is where they started to look fake. So we had to downgrade, actually, those images because, you know, the skin was too shiny. That looked fake, almost uh, uncanny. So what we've learned in the cinema industry and in the video game industry, too, is that if things look too real, they look false. And that's something that uh, some... uh, uh, filmmakers use to their advantage to to create uh, some horror movies that became really really popular at that time. The like I'm referring here to the Blair Witch Project, which was a movie made for only ten thousand with ten thousand dollars. That was the smallest Amazing, smallest right? budget in the film industry that created the biggest uh, <laughs> uh, business success. And what they did is that they just took uh, uh, with a very low budget, very simple cameras, very low key cameras, and they filmed that as if almost we were witnessing all those scenes through security cameras or through a very cheap camera that teenagers would have with them. And that gave that movie a a feel of authenticity that was so intense that people at the end of the movie all went on the internet to to investigate because uh, half of them thought that this was actually real footage. The entire movie is actually a complete fiction, but it looked so real because it looked so authentic by virtue of looking so poorly executed. And today we can see that all those uh, videos that are produced by by people, sometimes by organizations that are pushing false narratives, they are very, very low-key. They use very cheap cameras. They don't use big budgets. And they, the, because the more low-key it looks, the more authentic it will feel. So the, the signs of authenticity here are used. All the defects and the defaults are what actually embody the real today. So interestingly, if we look at the past centuries, just to sum this up, I promise I'll try to make this short. Uh, In the past, people were searching through the real world. They were searching for the signs of a superior dimension. They were searching for the signs of the spiritual inside reality, within their reality. Today, people are investigating the virtual to look for 
the real. You can see that there's a there's really a dimension uh, shift here. We're we're in a very different world. We spend a copy. I don't know you, but I spend a copious amount of time fact checking what I'm seeing now because it's extremely difficult to know what's real and what's not. Yeah, it's it's, it's wild. It's it's fascinating. And uh, again, I think you have such an interesting perspective on on helping us understand where some of those tensions come into play. I, I did want to take a little bit of a, of a left turn, but still related to your work in the digital world and as a, a creator in the digital realm. A lot of the applications and platforms that are out there today allow us to really become creators. Now, as you were mentioning, digital cameras, now we can all take a ton of pictures and someone might say, well, that just devalues, you know, the value of photography, but maybe it actually raises the value of other types of unique mm-hmm. perspectives or people who are able to, right, sort of a rising tide, you know, lifts all boats kind of perspective. But there are some rather, to use your own words, I think, complicated decisions to be thought about in terms of ownership uh, and design in the digital realm. You mentioned uh, in an earlier conversation, things about like avatars. And if I use those to create or I create my own avatar, or if I create a piece of digital music or digital art, who owns it, who should? Can you talk to us a little bit about that aspect of the digital economy? Yes, I, th- I think it's a it's a fascinating one. There, there's a case actually that was uh, adjudicated uh, recently in Australia, where an IP was attributed to an AI for for copy that was written, I think. And uh, that's a very important question. And I'm having discussions uh, with uh, intellectual property lawyers uh, on that topic because uh, if we think of models that are extremely powerful uh, in natural language processing, and I'm thinking thinking of uh, GPT-3, which uh, uh, created by the startup OpenAI. Uh, this is today one of the most robust model in the world for text generation. Um, and this is going to really revo- revolutionize the way we write. It's going to influence the way we write, but it's also going to produce tools and applications that are going to most likely write uh, hundreds of pages of you know books where they be academic reports or novels, or does it mean that they are going to become autonomous enough uh, to replace a human author anytime soon? No, because let's remember that those models are very good at generating text. It doesn't mean that they understand what they're writing. And we realize that there are limitations to that. However, it does raise a question when a writer is using those tools to, for instance, start writing a chapter and let the AI write the two-third of the chapter. Who owns this text? Who is the author? Well, uh, earlier I mentioned the the centaur model. Uh, I love hybrids. <laughs> I think they are really interesting mythological figures. I actually wrote my, uh, my master's degree on it. Um, I, I think that we have a huge, an interesting metaphor here because the future is not going to be about AI and robots replacing us. The future is not going to be, well, us deciding that we don't need AI after all. The future is really going to be about the hybridization uh, between between human intelligence and, frankly, other forms of intelligence. Uh, Even though human intelligence is used as the primary model in the definition of artificial intelligence, well, 
Uh, I do believe that it's actually, AI is actually other than that. It's an other form of intelligence. So who will own uh, IP on AI-generated creations? I'm not sure, but we're already seeing uh, those uh, situations um, in court. Yeah, it, we'll see, right? And the question now will be, does the platform, whether it's an AI-enabled platform or an AI solution, um, own mm -hmm. the content? Or does the, the user, uh, the wielder of that, that platform or tool own the content? If I can add something to, to what we've just talked about, because you mentioned avatars and how mm -hmm. people create, uh, now, uh, you know, I think that what, what is really one of the most interesting aspects of those tools is their ability to enhance, uh, people's knowledge about what they can do, how they want to exist in this world. People are going to learn more. So the learning capabilities of people are going to be enhanced by that. And as a result, uh, people will become more and more creative. I do believe profoundly that AI is an extraordinary opportunity to expand creativity from the place of teaching us that, well, creativity is not only a human thing. <laughs> AI can do it too. Well, animals are very creative too. So, um, and it's going to put in our hands uh, the, a potential that we didn't have before. I'm sure that if Leonardo da Vinci was alive, he would have his own avatar. He would have a collection of avatars and he would most likely uh, uh, be living the metaverse already. I am sure of that. <laughs> <laughs> well, it, it, as you were talking, that struck me, you know, because you were talking about different types of intelligence or different versions of yourself or having other realities or even creativity, right? That, a, that technology can be creative, um, that perhaps, uh, you know, does that require us as humans to have a bit more humility or is it really not less about humility and more about having an appreciation for there's room for a spectrum of, of different things yes. and different inputs and it doesn't always have to be we want to be, I think, human centric. And as you said, you know, look at human agency and make sure that we're shaping the tools in such a way that they're shaping us in a way that we, we think is appropriate. But how do we contextualize that? You know, where, where's the rubber going to hit the road for people in terms of how they, they think about is this comfortable to adopt and to accept? Yeah, so there are multiple questions in, in what you're, you're raising here, and I really love that. Um, the first question is, uh, is AI going to teach us a lot about ourselves? Uh, the answer is yes. And I'm not the only person to say that, actually. Lots of eminent researchers uh, are, are saying that. We, we are learning already a lot about ourselves. We already knew that we were biased, but maybe not everybody realized to which magnitude we were, we were yeah. biased. And and how bias was actually compounding with, you know, other other issues. So I think that uh, today we're already learning a lot uh, with AI. Uh, AI is like um, I often use that metaphor. AI is like a magnifying glass. Uh, it shows us things that we thought were eh, not really important, you know, we could do without, or we didn't really need to address that now. Ethics could be an afterthought. We'll take care of problems after they, uh, they arise. Now we know that we shouldn't, and definitely no company should. Uh, the risk for a company uh, in case of an, an ethics uh, AI ethics scandal is huge. Uh, a company can lose up to 25% in, uh, in market value in less than 12 months uh, following an algorithmic scandal. So that's definitely something that should really uh, raise, raise question. Now, how do we make sure that people benefit from those technologies? How do we 
uh, approach those innovations in a way that lessen the fears and that create enthusiasm. I think the first uh, responsibility that company have is to create tools that are safe to use, tools that that have cybersecurity guardrails, uh, so people don't don't open the Pandora's box. See, mythology is full of uh, good metaphors. Don't <laughs> open the Pandora's box in their home. Um, so I think that building safe technology uh, and and really thinking of the the things that are hard to think about. For instance, can this technology uh, likely influence this person in a, in a way that is going to distort uh, the behavior of that person? Um, like I said, are those objects vulnerable to cyber attacks? Did the data collected for that technology contain any bias or was it representative of the diversity of the world. So all sorts of questions that will involve the very important topics of ethics, such as uh, principles of ethics, or such as fairness, human autonomy, beneficence. Those are must be embedded in those technologies. They must really be applied as not just ethics principles, but design principles. And if people can feel and know that those issues have been addressed, uh, if they know how those predictions are going to be used and how they have uh, agency also over those tools, I think that we will uh, uh, see adoption um, moving forward at, at, at faster pace. But companies must address that from an organizational standpoint. The C-suite must really understand applications and implications of AI, what they can do, what they cannot do with AI, they must really receive um, an executive education in terms of AI ethics to fully understand those technologies and how they impact people in society so they can put in place the right risk management assessments and policies. Um, And you said the word human-centered. You know, when we started designing websites and I've been a full-stack designer for many years, so I code and everything. So I've been working on those things yeah. for years too. Um, it, we were not thinking in terms of user-centeredness. We were just thinking in terms of um, having a, a, a web page to deliver information. We were almost approaching those websites as just another another page, white page, where we were, we were throwing information. And then and we created websites uh, 15, 20 years ago that were undecipherable. They looked like the menu of a restaurant with 25 <laughs> buttons, and that was not at all effective. Today, no one would build a website like that. Uh, and today, websites also reflect laws about data privacy and people's consent. So we were we are doing things today uh, that are uh, user-centric and human-centric. And the same thing is going to happen for AI, particularly uh, as AI products are going to really be everywhere in our reality in a, in a very short amount of time. And, and I think bringing all of those bits together kind of brings us full circle to the beginning of our conversation, which is if we do those things well, if we're transparent and we're open about having some of these really difficult discussions, if we really engage in that conversation publicly and, and privately as organizations, and I think hopefully we can also start to shift this narrative, which is something that AI is something that is happening to us and not mm-hmm. something that we are happening to, i.e. it's it's something that has is coming you know, at us that we, we don't have control over because at the end of the day, we in fact do, right? Those are our tools and, and we can shape what they ultimately do. Absolutely, absolutely. And the, the key words here are really trust, 
and and benefit people need to feel that they can trust those technologies and they will feel that by experiencing how those technologies benefit them and that's why in an organizational context the best way to create trust in employees uh, when we want to adopt a new technology the best way to to avoid misuse and to avoid false assumption is to incrementally uh, uh, have employees use AI tools that makes their job easier and that makes them happier in what they do. And the more we do that, the more those uh, those technologies look different and appear different and are perceived differently by people. We're changing a mental model. And that's where we should start always going back to people's representations. Well, your energy and your enthusiasm are infectious. And clearly, I could talk to you for a very long time. But one last question. Uh, from your very unique vantage point at this intersection of art and technology and, and your history, um, many, many years in the making now, what are you most excited to see or watch happen next? I am the most excited about how we can use AI uh, to help uh, the planet. I think that this is really a problem number one. Uh, I'm really, really excited about how we use already AI actually to to improve our relationship with energy. I was going to say, well, the way we we manage energy. I'm thinking of smart grids and 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 new types of energy that we can we can leverage with AI and cost savings and everything. So I think that there's a huge potential in using AI for. Uh, conservation and, and to help uh, the environment, which is suffering a lot, as we know. Um, I'm very excited also at how AI will enhance the learning capabilities of people, how AI will create more autonomy for, uh, for people. I think that AI can actually bring a lot of equity to be successful in doing so, though we really need to make sure that first we uh, distribute AI evenly uh, in the world. Not everybody has even access to electricity today. So those issues are still there. AI is not going to solve everything. But once AI will be there for everyone, it has potential to do a lot of good things. I do believe in it. Yeah, that's such a striking point to end on, which is to remind ourselves that uh, we are highly privileged in so many, many ways. And, and you're right, not everyone has electricity mm -hmm. or running water. And we're talking about a lot of these very advanced things, and there's a lot of really basic problems in the world. So, well, thank you, Valerie. This was a refreshing and inspiring conversation, and I really enjoyed thinking more about that interplay between art and life and what we can learn about the future by looking back and how AI can, in fact, be a positive force for humanity. So thank you again for joining us. Thank you so much. Thank you, Kimberly. Excellent. Now, in our next episode, we're going to continue this discussion of how we can build a better tech future for all with David Ryan Polgar. David is a leading tech ethicist and a responsible tech advocate and the founder of All Tech is Human. You're not going to want to miss that one either. So subscribe now to Pondering AI in your favorite podcatcher.